This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're always looking for new ideas and topics from our listeners, so please reach out, share your ideas. You can email us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com or connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and you can find links to all that in the show notes. Now, on to this week's episode. Not only are the operating pieces of it really complicated to stand up, but there's a hidden cost. It's the operational hidden cost that's really significant. And most times we're seeing that significant enough to stop systems from moving forward with a program like Hospital at Home. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. On this week's episode, we're going to try to unpack the many strategic considerations around care at home, a site of care that's obviously been around a long time. It's been successful in some ways for many years, but there's new reimbursement changes and there's pressure on the future of skilled nursing facilities and it's forcing healthcare providers to take a longer look at what the home site of care can be used for and at the same time, understanding the limitations. I brought in three experts to help us do that. First, Jamie Zage, who leads all of our post-acute forecasting. Katie Elia, who just authored a briefing about the economics of hospital at home, and Jeff Mosier, who also just wrote a briefing from a slightly different perspective about how trends in care at home are going to impact the life sciences industry. Jamie, can you kick us off with an overview of our most recent forecast for the home site of care? Give us the context and explain what's been happening in the home and what we can expect to happen going forward and obviously what some of the drivers are behind our forecast. Sure. We're really excited about some of the changes we've made for the 2021 forecast, adding some new home care procedures so that we can really get at some of these emerging trends more effectively. We've always had a home care forecast by that home site of care. We've always had home health nursing as a core part of that, and that's a huge part of that forecast. It's actually still 85% of the volume in that home site of care. So at 15% growth is what we're putting in for our 2021 forecast. That's really going to drive the bulk of it. But now we're able to carve out home evaluation and management visits, home chemo infusion, home PTOT, which is another big chunk of the volume. And some of those care procedures are actually delivered as part of home health nursing, but increasingly, we're going to see them be part of these hospital at home and other non-traditional home care models. Overall, we're looking at close to 17% growth. There's a really interesting story going on with physical therapy, occupational therapy in the home. The changes in the home care environment recently have actually caused it to sort of retract. So we're sort of in a downward trajectory right now, and we expect that to last the next couple of years. And that's because the incentives to move to the patient-driven payment design have really disincentivized some of these extra components of home care. But we think with the nursing shortage in particular for home care nurses, that there's going to be a need to rebalance the care model and things like PTOT, those providers that can come into the home instead of the nurse can help extend the nurse component in the episode so the nurse doesn't have to do as many visits. We start to see a rebalancing. We'll see nursing aides, we'll see PTOT for those patients where it's appropriate. So we do see that going up. We're looking at closer to 20% for all services in the home for PTOT over the next decade there. So lots of changes going on there. Jeff, I think you've been looking at it with your life sciences work and the disease state. You've got some interesting things that you found there too. 
So number one, a question back to you, Jamie, and that is how big was the in as the starting point in 2020 in terms of home health? Because 20% sounds like a really compelling number. Is it off of a million visits or is it off 10? It's millions because of the home nursing piece. On average, in the baseline data, the statistics a little bit old, but we're looking at about nine visits per episode. And that was when it was the 60-day episode, so it's probably a little bit lower with the 30-day episode. So for every home nursing episode, think on average nine visits. So that compounds pretty quickly. But the PTOT is significantly smaller, E&M visits smaller in the tens of thousands. So yes, we're at a low end on a lot of those components. Home chemo infusion is really small, actually. Well, I think about it from a life sciences perspective and a logistics perspective as care shifts to the home, those needs really rise up with it. The equipment needs, the logistics support, the staffing considerations, you name it. And all of that expands with that same 20% step up. What we've seen is that foundation of home health really does support the evolution into the hospital at home program. What you just mentioned, traditional home health services, PTOT, speech therapy, infusion therapy, psychiatric care, wound care, pain management, medication management, dietary education, all of these things in organizations that are good at this, maybe it supports their next step up in raising the acuity level, but having that foundation to now look at bronchitis and look at venous thrombolism and pancreatic disease, all of these things that would be admitted into the hospital at home program. You need to think about pancreatic disease in the home. You need an infusion pump for IV fluids. You need blood draws. You need nutrition support. You need home nursing and physician visits and remote monitoring. It's not a huge leap to understanding the supportive needs to move to higher acuity care occurring in the home setting. I would agree. What Katie and I had showcased even last fall in a webinar that we co-delivered was the idea that when you start thinking about hospital at home, it's technically, it's not post-acute, but it's a lot of the same skill sets. It's a lot of the same components. You just got to think differently about how you use them in order to be able to convert to that hospital at home model. And there is some potential for growth there. As we have our conversation today, we'll understand why it's challenging right now. But over the long term, this becomes one of those really interesting places where maybe we see a lot more expansion towards the end of the decade. It seems like there's a lot of technology that's able to deliver more care in the home. On the other side, reimbursement's getting there, but isn't creating a super compelling case just yet. Katie, talk to us about how health systems are able to make the economics of hospital at home work, or in some cases, not quite work yet. We found in our research, the economics of care at home really don't come easy for many health systems. And that's especially true for acute care at home, especially when we're talking about government reimbursement. More often than not, we found that the reimbursement model dictates the operating model for hospital at home. And so you'll see that in our upcoming report. And it's important to really make note of is in November of last year, CMS announced this acute care at home waiver designed to, number one, alleviate those capacity constraints caused by the pandemic, but also to allow systems who are maybe inexperienced in this space to get their feet wet. There's about 50 participating health systems. The waiver in the last six months has allowed hospitals to treat acute care patients not only in the home, but also receive that payment rate equivalent to that of an inpatient DRG. 
In terms of the future of the waiver, we see that there's a lot of unknowns, but most likely at the end of 2021, the waiver will be sunsetted. According to our experts and our partners at CMMI, there will most likely be some level of a payment mechanism established post-pandemic, and hopefully that would mimic those of the commercial payers and reimburse at a rate that is discounted from those current inpatient and post-acute care rates. So more of that episodic piece, which is where you can see the most economic favorability is when you look at hospital at home through the episode, including both inpatient and post-acute. But what's really challenging about hospital at home is that organizations really have to stand up all of the operations you would in the physical hospital, but add on top of that a really complex distribution logistics model. Not only are the operating pieces of it really complicated to stand up, but there's a hidden cost. It's the operational hidden cost that's really significant. And most times we're seeing that significant enough to stop systems from moving forward with a program like hospital at home. We'd be remiss to not mention the fact that when you look at the hard cost, it's definitely more cost effective in many ways to build a hospital at home program and build, let's say, 50 beds versus building a brand new 50 bed building. If you have those more balance sheet minded CFOs, that's really attractive to them. There's really a nuanced decision making tree that needs to take place for a lot of systems. Trevor, does that answer your question? I would be happy to jump into some of the criteria that make hospital at home a little bit more economically favorable for systems. That helped me better understand it. So yeah, please go deeper. You'll see this in our report, but just at a high level, there really are a few criteria that make hospital at home a plausible venture for systems. And if you don't meet these criteria, do know that you're moving into kind of murky waters in terms of reimbursement is still unknown, especially post-PHE. Number one, health systems that are operating with a large number of risk and value-based lives and have the opportunity to partner with payers are more likely to succeed in hospital at home because there's value created for the payer. Typically, if you contract on an inpatient-only basis, you're usually giving about a 5 to 10% discount of the DRG to the payer. And we've seen that more than a few times now. But if you contract on an episodic basis, expect a bit higher of a discount only because you will be keeping those readmission rates down. That's money off the top given to the payer. But if you're at risk, that's money off the top given to yourself. Of course, being at risk is something that would be very favorable for you, especially if a meaningful portion of your business is at risk. That makes sense. But then there's another criteria, and I think this was especially relevant during the spikes of COVID. If you have capacity issues, and depending on where you are across the country, that's an ongoing issue. Not only is hospital at home really expensive to put up, but it's less expensive than building a new tower that makes the economics more favorable. It's having that established, not only population health driven mission, but also an internally owned and robust post-acute care infrastructure, specifically home health care. I would say a majority of the systems that we spoke to in our research had that really strong home health care business that had a great mix of remote patient monitoring and very skilled home health nurses. So that helps a ton, which leads me to the point that we tried to make in the report, which is if you own many of these ancillaries, the the home health agency, the home infusion pharmacy, even an ambulance company, that puts you a step ahead in terms of the economics. And it's just one small way to make the economics make more sense. Jeff, what have you seen with some of your LSI work? I'll put it from the health systems vantage point because I had a conversation with a few CEOs recently and I asked them about coming into 2021 and into 2022. Do they have any level of urgency to advance their strategies related to engaging in public health? 
And the answer was resoundingly yes. And I asked why. And they said, well, it's because that's the way payment is ultimately moving in terms of population health and capitation and value-based reimbursement. And we've got to keep people healthier. It was exposed dramatically, of course, through the recent events in 2020. If you take that positioning and then you maybe triangulate or weave a storyline together, what I see is an opportunity for this acute care at home to fill a gap in terms of the full continuum of support relative to population health, wellness strategies, this undercurrent of if I have good chronic care management, if I have ability to take care of patients in the home, if I have a medical home set up, if I have one of the CEOs that I spoke with talked about the ET3 program and how they were then using that as a point of contact in the home to determine hospital at home admission or acute care admission in the traditional acute care setting. This storyline really becomes a little bit more favorable in terms of how it fits into the overarching strategy for a health system. For the LSI community, this comes with all kinds of logistic challenges and how do they understand, is this a rounding area for the hospital or is this something they're fully committed to? And how would they approach that executive team to say, we have a service and product that can support the orchestration of this and frankly, some of the educational components, maybe some of the material that goes to the patients and even maybe some of the staffing that might support in terms of medication management, some of the outcomes and inter interactions with the patients at home, regardless of the program that they're in, medical home, acute care at home, chronic care management, et cetera. You bring up a really great point, Jeff. We often think about this as hospital at home, but there's a spectrum of care at home. And that's part of the challenge here in terms of some of those logistics. And Katie even talked about it a little bit in terms of pulling together the components. If you've got the DME, if you've got the home health, you've got some of those pieces in place, but it's not exactly the same. You've got to think differently about how you use those assets to deliver the spectrum of acuity in the home. And there's a, a cute little anecdote that I heard that encapsulates some of the challenges. It's like you're at, live in New York City, 2, 3 a.m. You might be able to get pizza delivered to your house. But if it's not nine to five, Monday through Friday, it's almost impossible to get oxygen or some of the other supplies that you would need for hospital at home delivered. And so you really got to think differently about that supply chain piece that can add to the cost a little bit. But again, it's really just thinking differently. And that's where some of the life sciences partners here could be really an asset to help you think differently about how you manage some of those basic components. That chronic care patient needs a very different set of supplies than that acute care patient in the home case. That's some of the things that we got to solve for to make this really scalable moving forward. That's a really good observation, Jamie. And you think about the availability of all of this. It is all available. The equipment, the supplies, the technology, all of it's out there. It's just the orchestration of all of that. Honestly, if you go Google home monitoring companies, you'll get thousands of them. All of this is out there. It's about building the partnerships to orchestrate all of this effectively. And if I'm hearing you correctly, I should be giving some guidance to the LSI firms that they should subcontract to pizza delivery folks. And that would help. 
Hospital at Home doesn't come without its challenges, but as organizations start to find that right balance and view the planning process and understand their right mix of resource allocation and market factors, this program can be successful, especially with the short-term and the decants of the ED and inpatient volumes, and not to mention the strong decrease in length of stay in general, but also the the long-term potential of reinforcing healthy populations and the opportunity to even couple or partner with a command center to even intervene even earlier before that patient even gets to the ED. So tons of opportunity here, not without its challenges, but exciting space. Katie, I was able to join you on some of the client interviews that you did in the space for the pub. And what struck me was that even for one of the organizations that had a really strong home health, they said to make hospital at home work, you needed a different nursing skill set. So we talked about, yes, if you've got home health nursing, that's a great infrastructure, but it's not necessarily the home health nurses. It's more those nurses coming out of the ICU environment or the other acute care components. Is that consistent with you heard through? some of the other interviews? Absolutely. The staffing piece is huge, not only from the limitations that exist around training and skill mix, but also the fact that it's labor intensive. It's time intensive, especially if you live in a geography where you have to get that nurse, that physician, that aid in a car and travel 60 plus miles. It's probably the number one or two biggest cost bucket for most hospital at home programs. So labor is huge. It's something that you hopefully will have established prior to moving into the program, especially with the CMS waiver. They are requiring two nurse visits a day, which a lot of even the most experienced systems didn't quite operate at. So people are making adjustments across the industry. Katie, on that two visits a day, what I heard from some of the folks I interviewed is they're doing one face-to-face visit a day and the other visit is a virtual visit. Is that consistent with what you've heard? Yeah, people are having to get creative. I also heard that CMS is allowing paramedics to come into the home and fill that gap for maybe a nurse who can't make it there. CMS is allowing the creativity and you just have to make it work how you can to get that inpatient DRG payment from the waiver. Katie, I'm just curious, if you have one patient admitted to this program and they happen to live 40 miles from the acute care facility, this can't really work. It isn't going to work. But if you have inpatient or admitted number of patients of eight, it seems like that might be much more doable. So what's the scale that you need to have just taking it from the financial vantage point for this to work? Scale is a huge piece of the report, and there's a few ways we've seen systems get there. You're completely right that there is a minimum viable volume threshold that you have to meet in order to make this program successful. It's shocking to see the variability across the country in terms of what annual volumes look like. Some programs are operating at 500 to 600 annual volumes, where some of the most notable programs only have about 100 annual volumes a year but they make it work depending on their geography. Another favorable thing is you could have your own health plan, still have only 100 admits a year and still be coming out ahead because you can control those costs a little bit better. So there's no quick way to identify what that minimum viable threshold is, but I would say it varies and we'd be happy to walk you through some of the economics and the analyses we've done in our report to help you get there. Jamie, I was going to ask a closing question about some of the factors that could lead to the forecast really accelerating in the second half of the decade because 20% growth over 10 years, that's not exactly blowing the doors off and saying the home is going to be the setting of the future. It's pretty modest growth, actually. But we've kind of talked about episodic payments, movement into risk, understanding the logistics, and making sure both staffing can work and that there's an element of safety knowing that you're going to do a lot of unknown environments. 
Is there another factor there that could really drive the uh, acceleration of our forecast? There's a couple of things. The payment and policy is one of the biggest linchpins here and the uncertainty there is going to keep us restrained for just a moment. There's a couple of other factors. And if we look even at virtual health as an example, there was a lot of clinical reticence to dive in. Are we going to get the same quality of care? Can we do what we need to do? The clinicians have to be comfortable with a different model in a different location and knowing that they're not putting patients at greater risk. Some of the trailblazers we have now, we're going to set the stage for that. We've got Mount Sinai and Mayo and others who are out there and they're monitoring the outcomes, right? We know that we're going to see some outcome studies on that, not just on the clinical side, but also on the economic side. Mass General Brigham has done some great studies as well in the sniff at home component. Once we get some of that sort of evidence base, then we'll start to see more clinicians come on board. We'll have a greater understanding of which patients are more appropriate versus not, which ones are at higher risk. And while we've talked about how great the technology has gotten, it's going to get even better. We're going to be able to monitor even more things in in a remote setting. And we're going to be able to use things like AI to manage all that data to predict when a patient might be starting to experience some complications before that nurse visit even happens, that two-day nurse visit that we talked about. So that you can get in front of it. Maybe you have to deploy a paramedic to the home. Maybe you have to deploy something else to the home more quickly, but you can do it all based on data, not relying on the caregiver that might be in the home with the patient. And so I think when we get to that point where we can truly transport that telemetry component that we might normally be monitoring in a hospital-based setting to the home-based setting, that's when we're going to start to see a lot of things take off. We've talked a lot about the financials. They got to match up with the incentives. That's how we drive it, unfortunately. But yeah, there's a lot of change that's coming that's going to help us grow. That's exciting. You're talking about data for the home setting. The data for the hospital, we already know hospitals are a good place to get sicker, to get less healthy. And any shift to the home to me is an exciting trend. Thanks to all three of you. We covered a lot of ground. I think it's really clear some of the future trends that we see coming for the home setting and some of the ways that health systems can make it work through a variety of lenses. So thanks so much for doing a great job sharing our perspective there. It's our pleasure. Happy to do it, Trevor. Thanks. Thanks, Trevor. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast, on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.